chapter 13 tonight as we get into the word and prepare our hearts for communion. John chapter 13. I'm going to read from verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. The ministry of Jesus when he was on the earth lasted for a period of about three and a half years. And that three and a half year ministry of Jesus Uh, divides essentially into three unequal parts. The majority of his ministry was spent way up in the north of the land of Israel in the region that the Bible calls the Galilee. And that was about 70 miles north of Jerusalem, which was the spiritual capital where the temple was uh, in Jesus' day. And Jesus spent about two and a half to three years uh, in the Galilee region where, where he fulfilled uh, the most part of his ministry in the accounts that we read in the scriptures. The second segment of the ministry was uh, the, the six months before uh, Passover week. And during that segment of Jesus' ministry, he was traveling from the northern region down through the various towns and villages of Israel and making his way towards Jerusalem where ultimately he would go to the cross. And so that was the second segment. And then the third segment of Jesus' ministry was the last week before going to the cross. And that week was spent in Jerusalem uh, preparing and, and just making the final things happen that needed to be fulfilled in order for him to then lay down his life upon the cross. Well, the events in our our text tonight as we look at John chapter 13 happened right at the very end 
of that last week of Jesus' ministry just prior to him uh, now going to the cross. And, and so the passage that we have before us uh, essentially divides itself into two segments of time. Uh, the first segment is just given to us right there in the first verse, where it says right at the beginning that it says that it was before the feast of the Passover. That's the first segment uh, of the passage. And then the second segment of the passage begins in verse 2 and carries all the way on through the next several chapters of John. And you'll notice that in verse 2 it begins by saying, and supper then being ended. And so verse 1 is before the supper began, and verse 2 is after the supper had ended. And so what the Holy Spirit designed for us to see in the first verse is the context and the scene and the stage that's set for what takes place in verses 2 and onward. And so two important things are told to us in verse 1 that set the tone and the context for everything that follows in the events in the following verses. And so what John tells us by the Holy Spirit in the first verse, first of all, is that the hour had now come that Jesus should depart from the world and now go unto the Father. Now this hour that John speaks of here in verse 1 is something that he had spoken of, John, uh, regularly throughout his account or his gospel that, that's read. The first mention of this hour was way at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus turned water into wine at the marriage uh, feast at Cana of Galilee. Mary had come to Jesus and said, Jesus, they're out of wine, and I know you can do something to help. And Jesus looked at Mary and he said, Woman, in tender terms... He said, don't you know that my hour is not yet? Meaning that there's an appointed hour for my ministry to be fulfilled, and this is not it. I was not sent into this world to turn water into wine. A little bit further in John's gospel, he got into an issue in one of the synagogues, and some of the Pharisees that were there desired to arrest him for persecution and to remove him from the scene. But the Bible says that they didn't have power to do that because his hour was not yet. The same thing happened a little bit later on in Jesus' ministry where, again, the persecutors and the haters wanted to remove Jesus, but they were powerless against him because the Bible says that his hour was not yet. But now when we come to chapter 13, just prior to this supper that we commemorate and celebrate tonight, It says that now the time had come that Jesus would depart from the world, and thus his hour had come. And so the hour that John is talking about here is the very hour and purpose that Jesus came into the world at all in the first place. In fact, this hour is the very purpose for creation itself. It's why God spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light, and there was light. All of human history prior to this time had been funneling toward this hour right now that is finally upon Jesus. The other thing that the Holy Spirit would have us to see in this first verse that sets the context and stage for what would follow after is the motive and drive behind all that Jesus was about to do. Notice that it says at the end of verse 1, it says that 
knowing that his hour was come that he would depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And thus it's important to the Holy Spirit of God for us to understand that the driving force and the motive behind all that Jesus was about to do from the scene that we read here all the way through until the end that he was driven inside and motivated unto all of it by this deep love that he had. Now, motive often defines actions, doesn't it? I mean, we see people do things all the time and we can look at their actions and make our assessments But unless we know the motive or the reason why someone does something, then it doesn't tell us exactly what their actions mean. My father and I were speaking. He's visiting, and we were talking this afternoon, and he said, what do you think about the bomb that was dropped in Syria? And my answer to him was, I have absolutely no idea. And the reason, you know, meaning I have no idea what I think about it. And the reason I don't know what I think about it is because I don't have all the facts of all the matters. I don't know what really went into all of that or why it was done or what's the strategy. I know nothing because I can't see the motives that drive the things that have happened. And without knowing the motive, the actions are obscured. I can't understand them. And so we read in the Bible the testimony of all that God has done. But unless we know the motive behind why God has done what he's done, it leaves the the story incomplete. We don't know what drove him to do it. But here it tells us that the motive behind everything that happens between now and the end is that there's a love that is driving Jesus to speak and to do everything that he says and everything that he does. That's the motive that's behind it. So love is the context of everything that takes place surrounding the events concerning the cross. You say, well, that doesn't help me very much because the word love, quite frankly, has become a very broad and very shallow and very cheapened word. And so when you use the word love, in fact, even if we ascribe that word love to God, I'm not sure exactly what that word actually means. I mean, we use the same word love to talk about the way we think about our food to the way that we think about our friends and the way we think about our spouse So what exactly does it mean when God loves us? Does it mean, well, that God loves me the same way that I feel towards the dinner that I ate right before I came here? Okay, well, that I liked my dinner, but I could have, you know, chose something else, you know, whatever. Is that the love that it means? Or maybe does it mean the kind of love that I expected to receive from my parents growing up, who told me that they loved me, and then the day came that I realized that they didn't even have really the capacity to love me in the way that I needed to be loved. And I realized one day that the things that they did were were ultimately self-driven and self-governed, and they weren't there in the way that they were supposed to be. Is that the kind of love that God has towards us? Was that love? Or is it the kind of love that my spouse promised to have to me? that was so fulfilling at the first until I realized the day that the love that they had towards me was only as deep as what they could get out of me. But once that was extracted and it was gone and there was nothing left, and all of a sudden not only did the love die, but it seems like the whole entire relationship died. Is that the kind of love that God has towards us? Because if that's what it means, then I'm not sure that I have the capacity 
to make myself vulnerable to another love because love has let me down so many times. What exactly does it mean when it says that he loves us or that God loves us or that Jesus, having loved his own that were in the world, that he loved them unto the end? Well, God wants us to understand exactly what that love is. He wants us to understand the context of it, what it means, what it feels like in his heart to have love towards his people, and what it means to you and I to receive that love and know that love and have that love. And so the Holy Spirit, through the pen of John, takes the time to set the context for all of what happened here, and in it he tells us five things that mark this love that motivated God to send his Son into the world to bear our sins upon himself, to suffer and die upon a cross, and then to rise again for our justification and our righteousness. Five things that John tells us in this passage concerning this deep love of God that he has for us, and they begin for us in verse 2. The first aspect of his love that's told to us, if you're taking notes tonight, is that it's a love that is inexhaustible. Notice that he says there in verse 2, it says, and supper being ended. It's an inexhaustible love. Now, the supper that he's talking about in verse 2 is the last supper. It's the communion supper, the Passover feast that Matthew, Mark, and Luke carefully record that John just kind of skips over. He doesn't tell us anything about the breaking of the bread or the distributing of the cup. He sums it all up into this one little phrase that and supper being ended. Well, what is that supper and what did it represent and why is it important? That supper is when Jesus symbolically and yet personally revealed to his disciples that it was his body and blood that would be slain and poured out in order to pay the price to cover the sins of the whole world. Basically, the supper speaks of the moment when the mystery of the gospel and of the ages was unveiled in its fullness. It's the moment that the lamb that God slayed in the Garden of Eden when he took the skins and covered Adam and Eve. The lamb that Abel slew that spoke of his righteousness. The Passover lamb that was slain by Moses and then each year by the children of Israel. It's the mystery of what the blood typified and spoke towards for all of the years of Jewish sacrifice and temple worship. It was the fulfillment of what all of that represented that would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who would lay down his life upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus would say that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear, but have not heard them and have not known them. And now Jesus, as he sits at the supper with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he gives them the cup, he's unveiling for them in its fullness the mystery of what all creation was about, that my perfection is going to be poured out in order to bring you justification. And the Bible says that greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love, 
or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And greater love has no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Yet, isn't it interesting that John just kind of passes over that and he moves on to what Jesus did after that? And I believe that John is symbolically speaking to us and he's saying that though this is the greatest act of love that can ever be demonstrated from one source to another, the laying down of the life of God for the sin of the world, it's just the very beginning of the love that he has for us. Sometimes when someone does something extremely wonderful for us, as an expression of their love, their love kind of ends or stops right there. We look to them later on expecting some token of love, and they say, well, don't you see what I did for you last time? Well, shouldn't that just be enough? And sometimes you'd think, well, God has paid the ultimate sacrifice. And so for us to look to him for love, for relationship, Sometimes we might expect that he'd look at us and say, well, don't you see what I already did for you on the cross? Now, come on, just survive until I come back for you and be thankful until then. What John is saying is that was just the very beginning of his love. It's an inexhaustible love. It keeps on giving. It keeps on loving even after the point of the cross. John isn't pushing the cross to the margins by passing over the supper here, but rather... He's showing that his love doesn't stop there. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He that spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all freely, how much more will he not now with him also freely give us all things? The love of God is an inexhaustible love. The second characteristic that John brings up concerning this love is that it's an unconditional love. You'll notice again in verse 2, that not only was it after the supper was ended, but it tells us there that the devil had now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. In, in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, and also in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, the psalmist prophetically describes in the spirit the relationship that existed between Jesus and Judas. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's an insight through the pen of David into the heart that Jesus had toward Judas, who had betrayed him on that night, or who was about to betray him. In Psalm 55, verse 12, again, the same sentiment is expressed. Jesus, by the Spirit, he says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, for then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then have would I have hid myself from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my guide and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. That the way that Jesus looked at Judas was not with the crooked eye of a traitor, knowing that he was someone who someday would betray him and sell him for 30 measly pieces of silver. But all the while, Jesus looked at him with perfect love. We're told a little bit later on in John's gospel that when the disciples asked him and they said, Lord, who is it that betrays you? He whispered back in their ear and he said, it's he who dippeth with me the bread, the sop. Now, the person that would dip with you was the person that was sitting on your right hand or on your left. 
meaning that Judas wasn't just one of the hindermost end apostles that were down at the end, but rather he was someone who was quite close to Jesus. And Jesus had a love for Judas in spite of the fact that Judas was never really with him. And the amazing thing to me is at the same time that Jesus was loving Judas in this unconditional way and is expressing to him and to them the depths of this love and what it means, what was going on in the heart and in the mind of Judas was how in the world can I sell myself out of this thing and how much can I get for it? That that was what was going on in the mind of Judas at this point. And the, the incredible thing is that that fact that that was going on in Judas was known by Jesus and yet it didn't compromise the love that Jesus had for Judas not one little bit. Jesus didn't expose him publicly. He didn't shame him. He didn't close the door for Judas to come back to him. And Jesus did not stop loving Judas in spite of the fact that he was about to be betrayed by him. I have observed in my time as a Christian that in the Christendom, uh, Christian kingdom or Christian life, there are two different types of professed Christians or believers in Jesus. There are those that genuinely love God out of a response for what he's done for them. And there are those that use God for what they hope to obtain from him uh, in some way if they just obey or, or follow enough that God will do something for them. And, and I personally, in my Christian walk, I have been both of those people. I have been the one who God will at some point reveal my heart and show me that I am just a big user of him. And I've also been the, the man who has come to love God and to appreciate him, not for what he gives, but for who he is. But here's what I've learned in my experience of being both of those people, both the user and the lover of God, is that it doesn't bother God one iota if a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ really is just using him for something that they hope to obtain from him. It doesn't bother him or, or frustrate his love or cancel out his love one bit. And here's why. Because God knows that if he has access to that life long enough, regardless of the motive that's driving that person to worship him, that that person will come to a point where they realize that the true value of being a Christian and of knowing Jesus Christ is not what we get from him, but of who we are to him and who he is to us. That that's the true value of God. And as we walk with him and come to know him in a real and richer way, the things that we can get from him become a way distant second to what we have in just knowing him personally in him. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're a person and you're under condemnation or under conviction because you feel like you've denied the Lord or you feel like you've let him down or you feel like that you've just, you've blown it way too many times and that you've become a Judas in the Christian faith. I want you to know here tonight that that is absolutely not true and that you haven't compromised his love for you one ounce through your failure. I have five kids and I know for a fact that at least to some degree, and they're all here tonight, so please, kids, don't be offended. I know that you love me, and I love you dearly. But I know that to some degree, they think that I exist as the servant of their comfort. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Because I know that someday, 
as they grow up and as they realize life and they, they come to a true assessment of what's really valuable in life and what isn't, that they're going to come to the realization that it isn't what they can get from me or out of me that's of any value at all, but it's the relationship that they have with me, the fact that I know them and love them and they know and love me. And God knows that to be true about every one of us. And thus, whether we've betrayed him, whether we've failed him, no matter how many times we've failed him, the love that he has towards us is relentless and inexhaustible. It's without compromise. He brings it to us and he keeps on giving it to us unconditionally. And if we realize this as humans, then how much more does he realize it as the divine? The third aspect of his love that we see here in the passage is that it's a love that's undistractable. It tells us in verse 3, it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So part of the knowledge that Jesus has at this point and all is that he has met the qualifications necessary as the Son of Man to become the heir apparent of all created things. There's two times in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ where the voice of the Father comes from heaven and speaks the words that the Father is pleased with the person of the Son. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he first came out of the waters of baptism, the heavens opened and God spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then a couple of years later, after Jesus had fulfilled the greater portion of his ministry, when he took Peter, James, and John and went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that he was transfigured or glorified in their midst and his raiment became white, exceeding shining and the glory of God appeared and the heavens opened and the voice of the Father then spoke again. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When God the Father spoke from heaven the second time concerning his pleasure in the son, it was symbolic that Jesus had pleased or met the requirements of the Father for Jesus as a human to have lived a perfect life. He was raised up in a body, in a home, under parentage. He worked and then served in the ministry. He defeated every temptation. He did always those things that pleased the Father. And he met all of the qualifications to be declared a righteous human being. And listen to me. At that point, if he wanted to, Jesus could have stepped out of earth's shadows and back into the glory of the Father, and he would have rightfully met the requirements of a successful human life, something that no other human being has ever done from Adam to the present day, nor ever will happen. And if it was in the heart of God to condemn sinful man, then at that point, Jesus could have stepped into glory, said to all of us, I did it. I showed you that I could be fully human, meet the requirements of the law, and you're all toast. You're all done. <laughs> Listen, by the time we come to John chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus had met the qualifications to become the heir of all things, except one. The only thing that he was not yet qualified to be the heir of were the souls of those that needed to be redeemed. Because the offering that would be acceptable for sin was not yet offered. His life had not yet been laid down. Here's the point. If Jesus was satisfied to have anything else other than you, 
He could have done it at this point. But he wasn't. It wasn't enough for Jesus to have a competing influence. One of the weaknesses of human love is that we can have competing affections. Do you know what I'm talking about? We love something just long enough for something better to come along. And we usually can only have one affection or one love at a time, right? And then our love for the former thing kind of wanes, and our love towards the newer thing waxes greater. Not so with this love of God. It's a love that is absolutely undistractable. When God sets his love upon a life, in this case, the context, a human being, of you and of me, there is nothing, nothing, that can distract him from that love or deter him from it or that he would trade or take in place of it. He will not do it. You are of infinitely more value to him than any other thing that he could possibly have. There might be someone here tonight and you in your life, just in the honesty and quietness of your heart, and this could happen, this does happen to every single one of us, so no condemnation, is that you could find in your life that you find your satisfaction in the things that you can obtain in this world. The possessions, the things, the positions, the money, the status, the power, the things that people spend their lives chasing after and having. And that could be you, that you could say, you know, that the master passion and highest affection of my life is, and then you could put something else in that blank. And that's a, that's a place that we all find ourselves in from time to time, or, or, or sometimes we, we live our whole life that way, and we could die there in that place. But I want you to just think about this for one minute. That even God, who has all things, and even Jesus, who at this point was given all things, had a longing in his heart for something that no created thing could ever fill. And he was willing to say no to all of that in order to have a relationship with a free moral agent that is you and I, even if it meant laying down his life to have that very thing. That same longing exists in every man, woman, and child that ever lived. The longing to be in a meaningful, satisfying relationship with a holy God. And only God can fill that void and vacuum within our life. There is no created thing that can do what God himself is designed to do in a human life. And God has that same longing for relationship with you that he has placed in our hearts to have with him. It's remarkable, isn't it, that even Judas, who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he didn't have that silver for 24 hours. And he brought it back to the Temple Institute where he was given it. He threw it on the ground and he said, I don't want it. It didn't satisfy in the way that I thought that it would. Unfortunately, he didn't come to repentance truly unto a knowledge of the truth. Maybe you're here tonight and you've tried to fill your life with things to no avail. That hole just gets bigger the more that you put into it. The Bible teaches that we were made to be in relationship with God and our souls are listless searching, grasping for something until they find their peace in Him. It's the only thing that can truly satisfy And it was demonstrated first by Jesus who put behind all things in order to obtain us. It's an undistractable love. The fourth element of his love that's put forth to us in the passage is that it's a love that's invaluable. Or rather you could say that the value of it is incalculable. You can't measure it. It tells us right after uh, he had been given all things, it says that he knew that he was come from God and that he went to God. 
Now, if someone comes from God and they're about to go to God, then what that means is that they came from and they're about to go into glory. And glory is the word that the Bible uses to describe the ultimate bliss and satisfaction, the highest place and privilege that a person can occupy or, or that a place uh, a person could be. So he was in glory previously and he was about to go to glory. But what does that mean? It means that where he is presently is not glory. <laughs> so where is he presently when he speaks these words? Well, he's on earth. He's not in glory. In John chapter 17, just a few minutes from the passage that's here before us, when the words of Jesus' prayer are recorded for us, he looks up to heaven, he lifts his eyes in verses 4 and 5, and he says, Father, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. Now, therefore glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. The thing that Jesus hungered for on a daily basis as he fulfilled his ministry was to be back in the presence of the Father. So what's the point? The point is this. Is that for the sake of paying the price to redeem mankind and bring us into a relationship with him, Jesus was willing to step out of glory, out of the Father's presence, out of heaven and to come into the world clothed in human flesh and to dwell among us and to live the life and fulfill the ministry that he did. Now, I don't think we realize how great a price that is for him to have to pay. How big of a step down is it for God to become a man? There's no illustration that I could possibly give that would illustrate what that means. For God to step out of glory and become a man. And I've heard many people try. Well, it'd be like man becoming a maggot or a worm, you know. But it's even lower than that. It's even more than that. Sometimes we hear stories about a puppy that gets trapped in a well, you know, and like a little hole in the ground. And, you know, people shine a flashlight and it's sinking and it's howling and it's crying, you know, and they try different things to get it out. Well, what if you, the only way that you could rescue that puppy could, had to lower your son, your only son, who was the only one small enough to fit, down that well shaft to grab that suffering puppy that was going to die and drown in the misery of that deep well, knowing that your son was going to die in the process of doing it, but you did it out of love for that puppy. That's a terrible illustration. If you change puppy for malaria-infested rat... And you change well to something even, you know, worse than that, then you might get a little bit closer. But for God to become a man and to dwell among us and to take upon himself human flesh is the biggest step down anyone could ever take for the sake of another. And yet he was willing to do it because it was the only way that you and I could be saved. But it didn't stop there. Because it isn't just that he became a man. You say, well, I'm a man, a woman, you know, and, you know, it's not so bad, you know, <laughs> painting it like it's horrible. But in that place, he had to take upon himself every sin that was ever committed by every person that ever lived. And for the perfection of God to carry the sin of all of mankind upon himself is an immeasurable price. And the thing that motivated him to do it was the love that he had towards you and me. 
and his desire to bring us back into a relationship with himself. Every sin was laid upon him. And then finally, the passage describing this love tells us that it's a love that is unashamed. It tells us in verses 4 and 5 of the passage that he riseth from supper, that he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel wherewith he was girded. With all of this as the backdrop behind what Jesus is about to do, we're told that now he takes upon himself the form and the posture of the lowest servant. Notice the order in which it tells us things happened. It says, first of all, before anything else, he took off the robe or the clothing that he was wearing. So just put yourself in that room for just a minute. You're one of the 12 that's sitting around the table. And all of a sudden, Jesus, upon whom every eye is, the one who is their Lord and Master, they know full well who he is. Peter's about to say, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. They know who it is that's in front of them. And they watch the very Son of God, God in the flesh, stand up in their midst and take off his clothes and make himself vulnerable in their presence. That's the first thing he does. Then he walks over to the place where he can find a basin and then to the place where he can fill it with water. And he does that wearing very little, just girded with a servant's towel. And in the silence of that moment, as the disciples just watched wondering, what is he going to do next? He approached one of the twelve and he got down on the ground on his hands and knees and he poured the water into the basin. He took the sandal off of one of their feet without speaking a word. And he began then to just wash their feet. Now, it would be one thing if he did this at the beginning of his ministry, right? Can you imagine when Jesus is just establishing a following? Come on, guys, let's go. And they get in the boat and he washes their feet. They'd be like, who is this guy? But he does it at a point when they know full well who it is that's doing it. And God puts his hands in the lowest, dirtiest, most defiled place in the life of a man. He went to the ugliest, smelliest place that is the most vulnerable on any human being, and he got his hands in it. He felt every wart, every hangnail, every bit of toe jam. He saw the yellow nails that can accompany certain people that don't take care of their feet in the right way. He felt the corns on the bottom of their feet, you know. He didn't have soap. And after wiping them with his hands, he took the towel, the clothing that he had now put upon himself, and he took that filth and he wiped it on that towel. And so he was willing to wear upon himself the defilement that they picked up in their daily life. Now understand that what Jesus is doing here is separate from the cross, the blood of the cross forgives us of our sin. It makes our standing before God completely righteous and clean. It's our token to get into heaven. But what Jesus is doing here is different. This isn't for salvation. This is the washing of daily defilement. This is God becoming intimate with the most vulnerable part of me, the part that I don't want anyone else looking at, I don't want anyone else knowing about, and him getting in there and doing something with it to clean it. Peter is so ashamed at what his feet are and represent that he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, uh-uh. No, you aren't washing my feet. And Jesus looked back at Peter and said, Peter, if I don't have access 
to every part of your life, then you have no part with me. Listen. In order for my love to do in your life what my love is going to do in your life, you have to understand, Peter, that I see and know and am intimately aware of every little part of who you are, even the things that you would never want anyone else to know. And not only do I love you in spite of the fact that those things exist within your life, but I'm willing, if you'll let me in, to remove the filth and the stain of every one of those things. It's a love that's greater than our shame. There's a man, I don't want to give his name, who lives on the West Coast, who has been a servant of the Lord all of his life. His father is a well-known pastor and Bible scholar who's made a great impact in our world. And one of this pastor's sons has been struggling with an illness that has um, kept him quite debilitated for most of his adult life. And recently he had an episode, a flare-up in his stomach, and he was taken to the emergency room. And as he um, uh, took off his shirt for the doctors to see, his stomach opened up and his intestines spilled out all on the ground while he was conscious, just looking at the inside of him on the ground. And a nurse came and got a bucket and put all of his insides, and he had to carry his intestines in a bucket down the hall. They made a decision to operate, and in the process of things, he was so weak, he became so frail that they're not sure, but they think he probably died a couple of times. And when he woke up and came to, he'd had extensive brain damage because of some of the things that had gone through. And he woke up and he said, I I don't want to be dogmatic about this, and I don't want to try to be doctrinal about it, but he says, I went to heaven. He says, I know that I saw heaven. And he wrote down his experiences and the things that he saw in it. And very solid Bible guy, not at all trying to, you know, write one of these books and make money. He says it right at the outset, but he gives a testimony of the things that he experienced and the way that it impacted him and the way that it it changed him. And one of the chapters in the testimony that he wrote, I want to share it with you. I know you get nervous when I say chapter, but it's really literally only three paragraphs. But let me read to you something that he said that that I I literally wept for an hour and I'm going to try. I'm going to harden my heart right now and think about something else because this is so. uh, But listen, just listen to it. And it ties into our study. The chapter is called Finally Recognized. He says, I'm still hurting. Some people see me as a pastor. Others talk to me as a neighbor. I appreciate the closeness of my family the graciousness of my church community, and I'm hurting. Maybe you can relate. Perhaps you are hurting. In fact, more than perhaps, you've been hurt in life. God knows, yet few others do. No one can fully relate. It may not even be anyone's fault. At least you don't seek to keep a tab. You just cannot be fully recognized. You will in heaven. As the Apostle John said in his letter, you will know as you are known. You will find your place fully recognized. Though it may take some time, yet maybe for the first time. When Jesus first rose from the grave, few people recognized him. Not immediately, not at first glance. Mary Magdalene thought him to be a gardener. Peter and John saw him on the shore. They didn't know it was him right away. For Thomas to believe, Jesus invited him to touch his wounds. He traveled 12 miles with two of his disciples. They finally knew who it was once they sat down and broke bread. It took time, 
but each follower would recognize him. Yet they would see Jesus in ways they hadn't before. He was seen as he truly is, not simply as a carpenter, nor a mere rabbi, not even a healer. He was seen as the risen Lord. When we are dancing on streets of gold, I wonder how long it might take to recognize one another. It might take some time, not because we're hidden or disguised, but we are finally seen for who we truly are. All our masks are withdrawn, our flaws and sins taken away. Maybe only in heaven will we see without all the junk, no hypocrisy, simply love. Every single one of us in this life that are sitting here with a pulse and a heartbeat tonight wear masks. All of us have things about our lives that we wouldn't want anyone to know about, that we hide with every bit of effort that we can to the point where now it's just second nature to us. Because there's things that we're so ashamed of that if we were vulnerable enough to let those things be known, we would be stomped into the ground. And yet what John and Jesus are communicating to us in this act that Jesus did, motivated by his love, is that he knows every intimate detail of our lives. The things that we're the most ashamed of that we wouldn't want anyone else to know about. And he loves us anyway. And not only is he willing to deal with those things and tolerate them, he alone knows how to remove them or to keep them if they're a part of us, that he wants there. It's a love that's greater than our shame. We're going to take communion tonight. And it's the one part of all of this, of what happened on that night that John left out. Isn't it amazing? He kind of skips over the supper. You guys can come on up. The musicians can come up as we prepare our hearts to take communion. But for us to take communion tonight is for us to take the meaning of this passage now, the meaning of this love, and to make it our own, to take it off the page and make it real in our lives. All of the events that happen in John chapter 13 and then 14 and then 15, 16 and 17 and onward, all of those events and words that Jesus spoke find their culmination in the cross, into the place where Jesus is ultimately heading. The cross being the place where he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, even in him. The cross where God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer imputing their trespasses unto themselves. The cross where Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. One of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The motive behind God's sacrifice, the cross that we celebrate and commemorate tonight, is that God loved us so much and he wasn't willing to see us plunge into a Christless darkness of eternity. And that love motivated him to lay down all 
for us. The table is where it becomes real. Let's pray and worship while we prepare our hearts to partake of the communion together.